Well, welcome to City Life. Uh, it's a good night to be here. Good to see all your faces, but it's an especially good night to be here. Uh, last week was incredible. It was a, our sharing service. We do that annually. So to hear from each one of you what God was doing in 2018 to start our expectancy for this year was just wind in, I know, a lot of our sales and especially my sale as a pastor. But it is good to be back. Uh, it's been a wild couple months for Steph and I with these surgeries, but it's good to be back in the pulpit. It's good to be back preaching. And we're kicking off a series tonight, so it's a, it's a good night to be here because we're going to be in this series myth-busting, undoing the headaches and the heartaches inflicted by half-truths. And we'll be in this for a while. And tonight's really just going to explain the why. Tonight we're going to break down the heart behind this series, why we're in it. And uh, as we do that tonight, if we could turn straight to the Word of God, it's Acts chapter 17. It's verses 10 through 12, and it's here that we're introduced to the church in Berea, and if, and if there was a mascot for this series, I don't know what it would look like, but it would be the Bereans, <laughs> but we're going to be in Acts chapter 17, verses 10 through 12, it says in this passage, it says, that, that very night, the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea. When they arrived there, they went to the Jewish synagogue, and the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. And they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if what Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. As a result, many Jews believed, as did many of the prominent Greek women and men. Before I go any further, if I could just pray. Lord God, we thank you that it's so evident that your Holy Spirit is here. And God, it says in your scripture that your Holy Spirit guides us in all truth. God, I pray that, that you would do just that tonight. And we would also experience where it says that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. God, I pray that you would free us from broken mindsets, flawed perspectives, Lord God, and bring us the life that you promised. Do that through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So I love in this passage that it says that the people that were listening, they listened eagerly. Another translation said they listened enthusiastically. I like to think that these were people that were taking notes. These were people probably sitting towards the front saying, amen, come on, that's good. They were enthusiastic to hear the word. And I bet when Paul and Silas left, they looked at each other like, man, the Holy Spirit did some work tonight. We, we, we crushed it. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we crushed it. Giving each other fist bumps, right, high-fiving, getting on Twitter to see what really impacted people that people were sharing. But... You look, and uh, these listeners in Berea weren't on social media. Some of y'all like, duh, right? But what were they doing? It says that they were fact-checking all of what Paul and Silas had preached. Like, does this actually line up with Scripture? And maybe you're like, wait, I thought it said, one, they were open-minded, and two, they were enthusiastic and eager to hear all of it. But, man, what I want to tell you tonight, and what I want to work through in this series, that, that, that questioning and to approach God and question and examine scripture, that's not due to a lack of faith. That's because of a love for truth. And the people of Berea loved God's truth so much that they didn't want half-truths that were going to hurt them. They wanted God's truth, full truth, that brings life. So they were like the original Snopes. I'm not talking Severus Snape. I'm not talking about Emperor Snoke. I'm talking about Snopes. And maybe you're like, what is Snopes? Snopes is a site that launched with the goal of helping people fact-check this flood of information we're hit with every day that sometimes includes urban legends, sometimes just straight up includes myths, stuff that didn't really happen. You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of us have shared something before only to realize maybe the next day or like the next hour that, oh, that's not actually true, right? Or we've all seen somebody do it. Maybe we won't raise our hand for ourselves, but we'll throw somebody else under the bus. We've all seen that happen, right? So Snopes exists, so like you see, oh, Tom Hardy died in a, in, a, in a motorcycle accident? 
before you share it, you can actually see, did that really happen, right? Does it, there's random stuff. Does, does gum really take seven years to get through your digestive system? There's uh, that picture everybody posts after every hurricane of a shark swimming down the road, right? You've seen it on Facebook a hundred times. Is that really from the last hurricane? Newsflash, no. But the, re- the reality is we're constantly receiving this flood of information, and not all of it's true. There's a need for accuracy that's never been more felt, and because of this flood of information, there's a need for accuracy that's, that's never been more forsaken. And a lot of what we receive, maybe not a lot, but, but some of what we receive is it's not true, and when it's false and taken as fact, these things can do damage. I'm not just talking about news. I'm not just talking about things shared on social media. But tonight, when you look at scripture, when you look at being a Christian, when you look at the church, it's also true with what we hear. You know, the verse at the heart of the series that I read last fall that sparked this whole thing is Galatians chapter 5, verse 9. And I was reading the Bible in the Amplified Version. So that's what's up there. It says a little leaven, right? Yeast is what it's talking about. It says a little leaven. A slight inclination to error leavens the whole batch. It perverts the concept of faith and misleads the church. So as a pastor, when you read something can mislead your entire church, you take note. And it's not saying bold-faced lies that are obvious on the surface. It's not saying a little inclination to error can derail the whole thing. So the question I think we should ask ourselves in light of this verse and in light of the time of year, as Tara was talking about New Year's, is how many of our missteps are the result of being misled by misconceptions. How many of our headaches, how many of our heartaches are the result of living by half-truths? Because again, when it's false and it's taken as fact, when it's off-base but it's foundational to our beliefs, it can do damage. But again, as Tara mentioned, New Year's resolutions, how many of us made a resolution this new year? Some of us? Those of us that didn't, like Tara said, we're just scoffing at those that did because of like the success rate of New Year's resolutions. Right, we, but at the heart of New Year's resolutions is, is a good reality that we recognize. That change, that growth doesn't just happen by accident. You do the same thing this year that you did last year, you're probably going to get the same results. It's just this, this recognition that if we want to change and if we want to grow, we've got to be intentional. Progress doesn't just happen. But the question I would ask is, is where should our intention begin? Where should it begin to bring about change? And do we often fail because we don't go deep enough? I think a lot of times for New Year's resolutions, like they were saying, maybe you're trying to get rid of some stuff. Maybe you're trying to add habits. But there's an old quote, and it's one of those quotes that everybody said, and it's been attributed to everyone. Uh, So I don't know who said it first. But it's, it's watch your thoughts, they become words. Watch your words, they become actions. Watch your actions, they become habits. Watch your habits, they become character. Watch your character because it becomes your destiny. And I think most of us, hopefully, right, we should be concerned with our destiny. Whether we're talking like our five-year plan and five years down the road or what's going to come of our life, I think most people in church or outside of church would say, yeah, I'm kind of concerned about that or or, I'm focused on that or I want to invest in that. And so during the year, whether it's around New Year's or other times during the year, we'll we'll make resolutions. I want to change. And I think so often we take it back to our habits. We want to change our habits. But I think often the reason we fail again and again is we keep going back to this list, but we only go as deep as our habits when we really need to go as deep as our heart and our mind, our thoughts and our beliefs. Proverbs 23, 7 says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Our doing 
is often rooted in thinking. Bad habits, they flow from bad decisions. And bad decisions, they, they flow from bad or incorrect or just dumb thoughts. There are some areas in life that, yeah, we need to stop doing now. But what will help us and empower us to do that is often to stop believing the wrong things, half-truths, urban legends, or just flat-out myths. You know, there's a show called Myth Busting. I didn't watch it a ton. I just remember they had really great facial hair. One of the guys had a great mustache. Both of them had just great facial hair that I clearly can't grow. But it was a show where the hosts, they took questions, they tackled myths and urban legends, and they put them to test to find out what was true and what was false. So, I, again, I didn't watch many of them, but there were a couple that were memorable. One, because they tried to find what's called the brown note, and I won't get into that, but it involved musical notes and wanting them wearing an, an adult diaper. So you can do the math. And if you've ever been in here in worship and you're kind of concerned, somebody might hit it because they're in, like, a key you've never heard before, working towards notes that it sounds like they're making up, it's false. So don't worry about it. <laughs> but there's a, you've probably heard this before, you only use 10% of your brain. You've probably seen movies, right, based on this, Limitless, right, TV shows based on this, that if we could just tap into the other 90%, then, man, we probably have superpowers we could unlock. But, again, they, they saw that we actually use way more than 10% of our brains. So I'm sorry if you were thinking you were going to get some superpowers by tapping into the other 90% and joining the Avengers. It's probably not going to happen. But they would test these, these things that we say so often and say, well, is this really reality or is this a myth that we operate from? And I would say that you look at 10% of your brain, it's, it's, our problem so often isn't the percentage of our brain that we're using, but what percentage of your mind is being taken up by half-truths or things that aren't necessarily true, both about yourself and, more importantly, about God? Because what you believe determines how you act. And this is enormous in our walk with God. We've said it before, this pulpit often has the feel of a teaching pulpit because good theology will help us lead godly lives. But the other side of the coin is that bad theology, especially the theology that we preach to ourselves and our mind throughout our day, it can derail us. And when it comes to discipleship in the modern church and in our modern context, what Stephanie prophesied is, is so true. As a pastor, where, where so many people would say, yeah, I've heard this from scripture. I've heard this or that. Sometimes you've got to burn up what's there before you can plant something new. Sometimes you've got to knock over before you start building and, and topple the half-truths before there's room for God's full truth that brings life. And so there's some misunderstandings in scripture that are pretty harmless. Like I remember the first time somebody broke it down to me that, that God doesn't change Saul's name to Paul. And in the moment when he told me that, like, I was floored, right? Because I've heard from the pulpit, you know, God changed Abraham's name. He changed Jacob's name. He changed Peter's name. He changed Paul. He can change your name, that kind of stuff. And you're thinking, wait a second. But Jesus, the Holy Spirit, Ananias, they all call him Saul after his conversion. Eleven times after his conversion, he's called Saul. It just turns out that Saul is the Greek version of Paul the same way Juan is the Spanish version of John. And that floored me when I, when I found that out. I was, I was like, wow, I've been believing the wrong thing my whole life. But you know what? I woke up the next day, and it didn't really change the way I went about my life, right? I wasn't shouting this from the rooftops because people needed to know. But there are other churchy urban legends, churchy cliches, and half-truths that we throw around, and they can be harmful. 
Right? Think about some of these. God never gives you more than you can bear. You're never more safe than when you're in the center of God's will. God's love is colorblind. It'll happen if you have enough faith. Only God can judge me. Or so often we just say, judge not lest ye be judged. We're quoting scripture, right? It's got to be correct. But these beliefs, they can keep us from careful thinking about complex issues. They can justify our own bias and establish behavior. And sometimes when we say these things to people walking through stuff, it hurts. It can do damage. It can wreak havoc. What's distorted can derail you, and it can derail others. Distorted half-truth is what derailed Adam and Eve in the garden and derailed mankind. You look at the first Adam. I want to look at the first Adam and second Adam. The first Adam is Adam, and then Jesus is referred to in Scripture as the second Adam. And maybe some of you fellas would be like, well, didn't Eve, right, she was deceived and she bit the fruit. But if you read Scripture, here's a myth. Adam was standing right there, silent and clearly not communicating. So, fellas, two things you can take from that that maybe that's all you need is stop being passive and start communicating. You can finish taking notes, pray over that, and go home, right? (laughs) So... So, that's why they call it the sin of Adam, anyways. But I want to look at partial truth. Because if you look at scripture, you realize again and again that half-truths, they're like the enemy's native tongue. Satan hits the scene as a snake with like a forked tongue, and he's got the, the half that speaks truth and the half that speaks lies. The half that'll quote God's word, but the other half that'll just twist it and distort it. And again, a partial truth it's a lie, right? Like, if, if it's just distorted by a few degrees, it's no longer the truth. I saw somebody do a, a deep study. It was pretty fascinating of Genesis 3, of the first two chapters of Job, and then in Matthew and Luke, where Satan is speaking to Jesus and tempting him in the desert. And they, they broke it down. They went to the language. They looked at what Satan said. They looked at what God says elsewhere in Scripture. And they literally looked at, okay, what percentage of what Satan says here is true, and what percentage is a distortion and a lie? And for Genesis 3, it was 46% true, right? Job, it was 48%. And I want to say Matthew and Luke, it was right around 46% again, which interests me. It's, it's like, yes, he uses half-truths because he can use them like Trojan horses, right? Because on, on surface level, we let them in because they're based on what God has said. Often, we're not getting them from snakes. Uh, if you do, we should talk about that. Often, we're getting them from people we trust, right? Reputable sources. And we're receiving have truths. In Genesis 3, we see have truths. If you look briefly at what God tells Adam, he says, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Like so often we look at this and we think he's restricting. The first three words are you are free, right? Freedom involves restriction and boundaries, walking in perfect freedom. This is God saying, you are free. I want you to be free. But then when the enemy comes to Eve and Adam, standing there silently, he says, has God said, you shall not eat of every tree? Technically, yeah, he said, don't eat of every tree, like, because you can't eat this one. But the way he, even just the way he phrases it, as he said, you can't eat of any tree. And then Eve replies with just a little distortion. She said, well, he said, you must not touch it or you will die. God just said, don't eat it. But she added to it. Just, I mean, it's small. It's, in, it's very small. But she distorts God's word. And God's word just keeps getting distorted in this conversation. What was meant as a caring command ultimately derails Adam and Eve and humanity. And that's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. He says, I fear 
that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted. Just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent, why is he concerned? Verse 4, you happily put up with whatever anyone tells you. So where, why do I share this? What does this look like in our modern context? I think we see a lot of copy and paste Christians. People that live according to a set of beliefs made up of a mashup of Bible-related quotations, blogs, sermon clips, or even just good sermons that were preached. But we take bits and pieces and we put it together and we build our faith on that. Like, I love, like, these calligraphied verses, right, where it's like a white background. Sometimes it's a nice black font. It's just laid out nice. I'm a graphic artist by trade before I became a pastor. Any way we can get away from papyrus and Comic Sans fonts, like I'm a fan of that. You could take scripture or like the version app where it's so easy to take a beautiful photo and put a verse over that photo. I'm a fan. I like it to make things appealing to the eye. And sometimes, you know, you'll see a verse and it's God's word. Man, that could put the wind in your sails to get through what was going to be a rough day. You're reminded of the truth of God's word. But I would say that verses without context, bits and parts of truth, it can't become our daily bread. It's like a plate of spiritual truths that only has one of seven food groups. We want the warm fuzzies and we often get little else. I heard it said by Jen Wilkin once where the prosperity gospel offers us all the things the Instagram gospel offers us all the feels. And what does this feed? It feeds something that we're more and more prone to do in the digital age where it's so easy to access teachings and information. We parrot our faith with bits and pieces picked up here and there. And this isn't to diss uh, one-liners or... or uh, even two-liners. You look at Proverbs, an entire book of the Bible, right, where it's just brief thought after brief thought. And this isn't to either give us a suspicion of Scripture. But my point is this. Far too many people following Jesus read Bible verses, but they don't read their Bible. They read Bible verses, but not their Bible. Maybe you think, well, what? <laughs> but that's how you get people who speak truth without context. Maybe it's truth without grace, grace without truth, because we're reading verses, but we're not reading our Bible. Both are good. Do both. <laughs> you know, there's a stat, though, that was found, I believe it was just last year, by a massive survey that less than 30% of Christians will ever read their Bible from cover to cover. What we're doing is we're not completely forsaking Scripture, but we're forsaking it in its, in its content and its context. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, you have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood. This is Paul speaking to Timothy. He says, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. He says, all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It, is, it corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. See, all Scripture is useful for all of the above. And as it says in the NIV, it gives a brief, a brief list. Teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. Again, so often, I'm not, again, I'm not knocking them. I like them. But the, the posts on social media, often you'll see uh, loads of reassurance, but you're not going to get rebuke from things that are handed around on the Internet and shared. Right? You'll see loads of confirmation, but you're not going to get correction often. From that, And the result is we end up less than thoroughly prepared and equipped to do every good work that God has for us. And I love the pattern that you see 
in just this passage here, you see scripture, mention of scripture, you see mention of salvation. And then you see another mention of scripture, and you see growth. Because the reality is this, what does Paul say? Faith comes by hearing. Hearing what? The word of God. Right? That's the fuel. That's the gas in the tank. But once you run out of your first tank, you don't start putting something else in the engine. All of a sudden putting juice in there or something. No, it's still gas. It's the same with us. The word of God is what gives us the faith to be saved. The word of God is what sustains us and keeps us going. We should be students of the word. We should be soaking in the word, feeding on the word, reading the word of God. And there's a key word in here that you can highlight, circle, whatever. It's cool to write in your Bible. All. All scripture. And its greatest content and context is useful for all of the above. But you look at the second Adam, Jesus. In Matthew 4, we don't have time to dig into the whole uh, episode. That's a sermon in and of itself. But the enemy comes and, and tempts Jesus. And what does he use? Scripture. He doesn't even distort it. He gives him straight up. Here's verses, and here's what you should do. And he's tempting Jesus in three different ways, three different verses. Jesus' reply, context. <laughs> he replies with Scripture. And again, I don't share this so that we become wary or suspicious of Scripture but it should awaken us to a reality that Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. Like when trying to examine one passage and what it says and its idea, we should approach it with an eye to what the whole Bible says about the topic. Like don't judge, right? We're going to preach on that in a couple weeks, so I won't go too deep. <laughs> but don't judge. I saw a meme once. This is how people read the Bible today. Judge not, and then the, you don't even, you're just done there. You're good. Judge not, I'm good. You don't even get to turn a page. You just stop there. There's not a lot of mic drop statements in the Bible where God is done speaking on it. God speaks throughout Scripture on these things. And there's two ways to check the veracity of, of half-truths or churchy cliches, and one of them is how do they hold up to life experience, to walking in my How does it hold up, these things that we say? Think about forgive and forget, where like forgiveness is self-induced amnesia, where we just forget anything that hurt us. People that bury past pain in an attempt to forget it, often they're not the healthy ones, they're the unhealthy ones. We got to deal with these things, grapple with these things. That phrase can hurt the people who live by it because we think if I can't forget this, then I can't forgive them. It doesn't line up with, with life, and really it doesn't line up with the word and a, and a God who we worship who is both forgiving and omniscient. God forgives, but he knows all things, yet he forgives all things. So we hold texts up to the light of life, but let's be serious. None of us are infallible. I could hold things up to my life, and I could get distortions of the truth. So we have to hold scripture up in light of scripture. It's what Jesus did. When Satan came at him with a half-truth, he came back with the full truth. He came back with the context. And maybe you're, maybe you're here and you're new to the faith. Maybe you've never read any of your Bible. Maybe it's the first time you're in church. Maybe you're thinking, why should I trust the Bible? Let me recommend a book. It's called, Why Trust the Bible? <laughs> it's like 100 pages. This is one of those ones you can sit down with a coffee, knock out, and then pat yourself on the back because you just read a book. And I would actually recommend anybody in here read this because it's just so good to dive back in. It's by Greg Gilbert. He's a great author that's written a lot of great books. Maybe you're thinking, I need more than that. You're convinced me. Well, here's a 500-page book you can pick up called Church History in Plain Language, right? And it breaks down in this book how the Bible came to be. How do we get the, the, the books that are in there? It, it's a good book. It's also 500 pages. That's a little heavier investment. You aren't reading that in one sitting. 
If you do read that in one sitting, I want to know how you read so I can. <laughs> Johnny Five, right? Short circuit. <laughs> Two of you got that reference. But when talking church history and the early church, Peter writes to the early church in his letter, 2 Peter, and in chapter 3, verses 14 through 18, this is only the tail end up there. I'm going to read the whole portion, verses 14 through 18. He says, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, talking about the coming of Christ, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, I think it's powerful. You hold this passage up next to 2 Timothy 3 that we just read. Again, you see the theme of scripture, salvation, and growth. But I want to look at a, a key word or phrase from this as we looked at the word all in 2 Timothy 3. A key word here is carried away. By what? Distortion. Distortions. They can derail us. Half-truths can hurt us. And I love that he, he talks about Paul's writings, but he says people do this with all of Scripture. But <laughs> there also is a little solace for us that if the apostle Paul, right, the apostle who wrote Scripture, could say that Paul's writing is confusing, that we don't have to feel so bad if we're reading through Scripture and thinking, I don't quite understand. Peter reading Paul felt the same way. You're in good company, right? And then we see if people were getting this twisted, in the original context, it was written in thousands of years ago. We're not in some new problem where it's, it's hard to apply. It's just encouragement. If you struggle reading your word, Peter did, all right? Some of the things that Paul said, he's like, these are dense. So operating as Bereans and wrestling with texts, it's good, it's proper practice. It keeps us from being carried away due to strongholds. And I think sometimes we hear the word stronghold, and the first thing we think is, is the demonic or something wild and crazy and unusual. But if you look at the words used throughout the New Testament, it's often speaking to distorted views, seeing incorrectly, broken mindsets, so often based on half-truths. They're the very lenses that we operate from that keep us from seeing and walking in God's truth. I once in a commentary saw them explain this way that a stronghold is a mindset, value system, or thought process that hinders your growth, the growth of others, and you exalting Jesus over everything in your life. He calls them mindsets, thought processes, and so often what we think, they're based on half-truths. They cause headaches. They cause heartaches. But the good news is if you read your New Testament, Paul says we have the power to demolish strongholds. We have the power to demolish strongholds. And it's not just anything, right? What are we smashing strongholds with? We're not talking about buildings. We're not talking about walls, anything like that. We're talking about mindsets, thought processes that aren't right. The weapon we have is the sword of the spirit. It's the one part of the armor of God that's a weapon. It's the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We can't neglect the word of God. It gives us the power to take back wrong mindsets, flawed perspectives, things that aren't true that would wreck us. You know, the Bereans, these original Snopes, the OG Mythbusters, whatever you want to call them, these stronghold busters, they understood the need for correct information. They evaluated and compared what they heard 
with scripture to make sure it was true. And again, many translations say they were open-minded. And I think in our culture, we say, wait, let me make them closed-minded. Everything they heard was like, well, is it true? <laughs> Prove it, right? <laughs> but the opinion of many these days is that having one truth and one truth that defines everything, it's closed-minded. Because we live in a day and age where so often you hear thrown around, my truth and your truth and their truth. And if the problem is partial truth as we talked about, why are we so susceptible to them? And I would argue it's because we like to, again, copy and paste and build our own personal truths. There was, a, again, a survey, a recent survey that found six in ten Americans agree that religious belief is a matter of personal opinion and not objective truth. That's just Americans, though. So you think, okay, they probably went into the church and nobody believes that. One in three Christians, believers, church-going members, believed that religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It's not about objective truth. How did my truth and your truth seemingly come out of nowhere and KO absolute truth? Make it seemingly irrelevant. Because we've arrived in what's often called a post-truth society where just a couple years ago, the word of the year for the Oxford Dictionary was post-truth which means objective facts are less influential than appeals to emotion and personal belief. The assumption we so often see in our culture is that as long as I'm doing what is good in my eyes and I'm not hurting anybody, then everyone should be good with it, including God. They clearly never read Proverbs, where it says there's a way that seems right for man, but in the end, it leads to death. Or read Judges, where it says everybody did what seemed right in their own eyes, and then it turns into a horror movie by the end of Judges, something you will never see on the Hillsong channel, right? The way Judges plays out when everybody just does what's right in their own eyes. It's because of this my truth, your truth, our truth influence that so many people don't feel the need to dig deep into God's word to make sure they line up with his truth. Because there's no need to do that when I've got peace about it or I don't believe God would tell me to do that it has more weight than what the Bible actually says. We like to think that this is open-minded, that everybody gets to have their own truth. I'm open-minded, you're open-minded. We all get our own truth. But I heard it said recently, we have become so open to everything that our minds are closed to the possibility something might be right and something else wrong. It's the closing of the American mind through openness, a tolerance for anything. See, the Bereans were called open-minded, and we think, how? <laughs> right? They're like... They're trying to get them to prove everything they said. Like, is it really true? What if it's just their truth and you got a different truth? Because they believed in absolute truth. They loved God's truth so much. It says they received it eagerly, enthusiastically. And they were fact-checking all of it. Because they loved God's truth so much that they didn't want half-truths. They understood that half-truths can hurt you, but God's truth brings life. And I think sometimes the whole reason I'm launching with the Bereans and it's a myth in and of itself. Maybe we'll address it. Maybe we won't. That doubt is, is, is always bad. That doubt is always destructive. That we should avoid questioning. But there's a good doubt of wonderment. God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. There's going to be a wonder and a doubt that causes us to question God sincerely in faith. There's a good doubt of discernment, which has us graduate from half-truths that might hurt us to God's truth that brings us life. And I open with this series and this example for two reasons. First, as we walk through this series, I don't want to come off as some uh, mic-dropping, myth-busting source of ultimate truth. Let's kick off a new year of preaching with a reminder. There's no pastor, no preacher that's infallible. 
There's no pastor or preacher that is the ultimate source of authority. J.I. Packer, he's an older theologian. He was sarcastically talking about listening to somebody preach. And uh, he apparently wasn't a fan because he said it was like finding a needle of truth in a haystack of error. So I, I'm not saying that. Like, I study, I read, so that hopefully I can flip that around and we're getting haystacks of truth and maybe some needles of error here and there, right? That's the goal. But I say this to say you should give your pastor the benefit of the doubt, but never let go of discernment. And any good pastor, any good leader, any good shepherd of God's people we're, wants you to do this. Because we're not called to make disciples that are dependent on pastors or preachers or podcasts or whatever. We're called to make disciples that are dependent on Jesus Christ. We're called to make disciples that are dependent on God's word and nothing less. So good practice. Practical application. Be a good listener. No matter what you're listening to. I mean, this is good life advice. You can thank me later. But I don't think Paul was taken aback or insulted by the Bereans with their inclination to prove it or, or, or fact check what he was saying. Matter of fact, the other town church that's mentioned in that passage in Acts is the one that he's writing in Thessalonians when he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 through 22, he says, test everything that is said. Hold on to what is good and stay away from every kind of evil. Again, this is good life advice. Test everything. I mean, you think about all the links that are, again, shared that maybe aren't even true. He's just talking about what's shared in the church. He's talking about prophecy and preaching. Test those things. You want to test those things? How much more all the other things in life? But again, this isn't about a lack of faith. This is about a love for truth. And here he's not even just giving life advice. He's, he's giving a command. Exercise discernment. And you might say, based on what? What's the, the log of answers? It's scripture, God's word. See, God's word doesn't just help us be a good listener either. God's word helps us be a good preacher. Maybe you would think, well, I don't preach, so you're about to check out. Listen, <laughs> nobody preaches to you more than yourself. Nobody. The voice in your head talks to you way more than I ever will. At least I hope. <laughs> I heard once, though, that in the course of the day, we have about 60,000 thoughts and 80% of it is negative. I look at a lot of surveys. I look at that one. I'm like, how do you even measure that, right? I was trying to find out, like, how do you measure the number of thoughts I have and how many are negative? But I think it's probably not far off. And it just makes us remember again and again that not every thought that goes through our head is divinely inspired. Right? There are some thoughts that, again, are like Trojan horses of discouragement, half-truths that become strongholds. Think like, how many of us around New Year's are like, man, I would like to read the Bible more in 2019. That's a good thought. But how many of us, the thought is, if you loved God more, you'd read your Bible more. Or if you weren't an irresponsible fool, you'd probably read as much Bible as that person over there. Right? It's a truth, but just in our minds so quickly, it becomes part of the 80% that's negative. When, again, when Satan comes to you like he came to Jesus, when he came to Eve with either a half-truth or even a truth that's just distorted, give him the full truth. Maybe it's I'm nothing without Christ. Yeah, duh, right? <laughs> but that's not a source of shame. That's what should drive us to him and his grace. Maybe the enemy comes to you. You think of like Romans 7 where Paul's saying, the things I don't want to do, I do. And guess what? You just did it again, right? Or, or the things you want to do, you don't do. You just missed your opportunity again. So the enemy comes with that passage. Hit him with Romans 8.1. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.37, we're all conquerors through his love. Romans 8.39, nothing can separate us from his love. Provide the context, right, to the enemy. And don't be a false teacher. 
I don't think any of us would willingly sit under a false teacher that preaches to us every weekend. Don't let yourself preach discouragement, buy into half-truths, and live a lie. Because, again, half-truths, they cause heartache and headaches that we can avoid. And it's through this weapon that takes down strongholds and anything that the enemy would use like that. But uh, one last stat that was found in the same survey that, that had the 30% will only read the Bible from cover to cover. 82% of believers never open their Bible outside of church. So really what that says is 80%, 82% of Christian Americans, sorry, 82% of Christian Americans, they're not reading their Bible. They're not opening their Bible. So we may, again, hear and, and parrot verses and ideas, but we're not reading the Bible. We're outsourcing the word, which is our source of healing. It's like we're playing telephone with God's word rather than hearing God's voice for ourselves. We're copying and pasting our hope from secondhand teaching rather than getting those promises for ourselves. We're not e- we have to return to our source of hope and healing. Our purpose and our promises, all those things that God has for us, it's, it's in here. If I could have the worship team come up, we got time. We got time. Again, to go full circle, we use more than 10% of our mind. So, again, there was a time where I was like, man, maybe if I can unlock the other 90%, be able to do more with my life. Maybe get superpowers. I don't know. But it's not going to happen. But, again, we've been given this power to demolish strongholds, which is pretty cool in and of itself. It says in Scripture, we've been given the power to demolish strongholds. It's not talking, again, about physical as much as it is about mental. And the power, the weapon we wield is what Paul calls the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And too many of us have let it gather dust. And as a result, many of us are being led by and preaching to ourselves just flawed, bad theology made up of half-truths and churchy urban legends that have been handed down to us and myths that sometimes will only serve to derail your faith rather than feed it. See, the, the truth will set you free, but half-truths will hurt you. But the truth, God's truth, sets you free. So again, that quote, watch your thoughts, it becomes your words. Watch your words, it becomes your actions. Watch your actions, they become your habits. Watch your habits, they become your character. Watch your character, for it becomes your destiny. Each person here has a destiny and a purpose. Each person here, if God, if you're breathing today, God has a reason for it. He wants to do a work in you, and he wants to do a work through you. You have a destiny. You have a purpose. But don't shape your destiny by trying to shape your habits. Go deeper. What do you believe about God? What do you think about God? Because that informs what you believe and you think about yourself. And, And what is what you believe about God based on? Is it based on this? We need to return to this day in, day out. It's not just the power to save. It's the power that sustains. It's God's truth. It says in Romans 12 that it's how we renew our mind by just sitting in it, bathing in it, going back to it again and again. And tonight, if we could all stand as we're about to go into worship. Maybe you would say, I'm dealing with some Trojan horses that came in because it looked like it was God's truth, but now I'm wrestling with doubt, wrestling with discouragement, wrestling with, maybe it's pride, maybe it's lust. Really what I felt God speaking to me during worship is for a lot of us, it's fear. We're wrestling with fear. It's worked its way in, it's a stronghold, it's a mindset where we're cynical, something I've had to repent of recently with what we've been going through, where you just realize, no, this isn't of God. 
this isn't based on scripture. This is based on something I've let in and I need to, like was encouraged earlier, let it go. Again, it might be a, a long list of things, but I believe God's revealing it to us. So if you wanna stand with somebody in prayer, I'll be up here, Steph's up here, Anthony and Amanda are back there. But if you would say, yeah, there, there's a stronghold in my life, maybe it's one, maybe it's six. And we're like, man, I need to rid myself of it. And man, again, where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom, there's freedom. And I believe there's freedom for us tonight. If we'll just be willing to bear ourselves, step into God's grace again. God, I thank you that at the cross, we're able to, to come and like Tara was encouraging us in the first worship set and, and not be okay. It's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay that way. And God, I pray that you would, would, would speak to us, God, those, those areas. We're gonna be in this for weeks, God, but I know that there's even areas tonight that you would lay your finger on and say, that's not who I am. That's not who you are. And God, I pray that, that as we sing this song, God, your Holy Spirit would do work. God, minister. If we need to get out our seat, come to the altar and lay it down on our knees, that we would do that. If we need prayer, we would do that, Lord God. But every one of us, we praise you in this moment. We worship you in this place. Thank you, Jesus.